Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, guys, this is Mike. I have a new Smart Home Show coming out with my friend Julie Jacobson from CE Pro. Next week, we're going to catch up on all the Smart Home news. Stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I thought you might want to listen to this new Smart Kitchen show where we talk about 3D printed food, food delivery robots, and Mike's meat juice problem. Listen, and if you enjoy it, please subscribe. Do it in iTunes, via RSS, or in your favorite podcast spaces. Thanks, folks. Have a great weekend. Welcome to the Smart Kitchen show. My name is Mike Wolf. The Smart Kitchen Show is a podcast about the kitchen, technology, and food, and the story of a conference that brings all those things together. I'm your host, Michael Wolf, and I put this podcast together because in the process of creating the Smart Kitchen Summit, I've been meeting lots of great folks that I thought you should hear from, too. If you'd like to listen to more Smart Kitchen shows, you can find them at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also go to smartkitchensummit.com backslash show. The Smart Kitchen Summit will be back in 2016 on October 5th and 6th in Seattle. If you'd like to go, just go to smartkitchensummit.com for more information. And now, on to the show. Ashley, have you, tr- have you tried 3D printed food yet? I have not gotten to try anything, but uh, I've almost tried the pizza at South by Southwest, but I haven't. You have, though, right? I actually haven't, unless I've been to a restaurant where there's been some like magical culinary <laughs> like design that I didn't know about. But I think we're gonna we're gonna have that opportunity soon, maybe at the summit because we're actually having um, the folks from BX come. They're gonna oh, be on the three D printing pl- panel. Yep. And BX for folks that don't know that they make three D printed. Uh, pizza. And so I think you actually found a story. There's actually a story about them. I think about a famous chef using their technology. Yes. There is a a restaurant in New York city. It's like this famous pizza restaurant called Ribalta and um, it's a chain, but it's pretty famous like for its, you know, kind of throwback to old world Italian, you know, charm and whatnot. And I have not been there actually, but it's making me want to go now. (laughs) Uh, I don't eat dairy. So that's sort of like, you can't, you can't go to a pizza restaurant and not eat dairy. But uh, the chef there is pretty, uh, you know, he's kind of like a celebrity chef in New York and he's this guy who like, you know, curates his or uh, his flour for like five days before he lets it, uh, before he puts it in the oven and the ch- tomatoes are from Mount Vesuvius, all this crazy stuff. So he actually started using the BHEX 3D food printer to print pizzas uh, in his store. And, um, you know, the story that was written about it, I think is pretty interesting because it's sort of like, this is 3D food printing's moment. Like the fact that a chef thinks the quality is good enough to serve, you know, as a, as a product in his restaurant, um, where obviously quality is really important to him. So I think that's kind of, uh, I don't know, it's an interesting turning point because you sort of, you look at the way this stuff's made, right? Like you, didn't you see the, the printer at South by, they had, they were making the pizzas. Like it's, it's all these like pastes and things put into this machine and then it pops out, you know, it prints the cheese and then puts it in the oven. But you'd think like that looks really fake and weird, but you know, apparently that's good enough to serve at a, you know, renowned restaurant. 
I think it's it is an important milestone because you often wonder how much of this is for show versus you know how much of this is a stunt, right? Uh, a lab experiment. I mean, I think the folks from BHEX are legit because they were, you know, NASA really kind of brought them in to help them make like a three D food printer for space. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like that's like a in one way stamp of approval, but to actually have like a chef use it in the restaurant, that's interesting. Now, of course, that's a big leap from, you know, when we see these in the consumer kitchen, like that's still like the big unknown to me, but I, I definitely think that you're going to see more and more of these, uh, 3d food printing appliances in, in the kitchen or in the professional kitchen. So, and the, the pizza one's different because like, you know, most of the ones I've seen, a lot of the early work's been done around, uh, around sugar because that's actually something that's fairly easy to print. And so like a lot of these pastry chefs, um, and, and dessert, dessert chefs are, have been using 3d printers, at least some of the cutting edge chefs, but not as much around things like pizza. So pizza one's interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of sugar and, you know, going to the consumer, there actually was a company that announced a 3d printer that was supposed to be sort of a mass production model, uh, called chef jet, which you just wrote about, uh, this week and they haven't actually gone to market yet or they haven't shipped it yet. But the idea was that it was going to be a printer that, uh, you know, used sugar to print all these different unique designs and desserts or whatnot. But you have, you have a sense that maybe that's not a, that's a real thing that might still be happening. Yeah. And by the way, I, I just have to break the fourth wall and tell our, uh, our listeners that, uh, your, your segue there was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting so much better at this. You're getting good at the segue. <laughs> you're never bad. You're like, you're natural. I think there was like sometimes where I was like, speaking of things that are totally unreal, irrelevant to this, but yeah, no, that was, thank you. I appreciate that. And by the way, can you break the fourth wall on a podcast? No, there's no fourth wall. <laughs> there's no fourth. I was like, where is he going with this? <laughs> Uh, I'm thinking in three dimensions uh, around food and I thought maybe you can do that in a podcast, but, um, yeah. So I actually noticed in an article in the Poughkeepsie, like the Poughkeepsie times of all places like this, they break a lot of stories there. Yeah. They're they're doing some cutting edge food tech writing in in Poughkeepsie. And anyway, they've done a piece on, uh, the, the, the work that the culinary Institute America or CIA is doing with 3d food printing. And there's actually a 3d printing specialist, um, working for them. And he actually said something that was really interesting. It's almost a throwaway comment in the piece mm-hmm. um, about how they are uh, working with the, the chef jet uh, 3d food printer from 3d labs, which I had been following for a long time. Cause I've been following 3d printing for a long time, been following food tech. So this was this weird intersection for me and they launched largely gone dark. You can't get anyone at 3d system to talk to you about this. Um, they're, they've really been quiet. They originally had said they would come out with this 3d food printer in 2014. That year went by, they talked about it in 2015, that year went by and, and in 2015, their CEO got let go. They, they closed a plant. So it looked like there was a lot of turbulence at the company. And I thought that maybe the chef jet was like one of these, you know, need to, need to think about, but one of these things that they kind of maybe sidelined because they're, they're kind of having some trouble. Yeah. Um, but it looks like at least if you're, if you're, if we're to take what this guy says at the CIA, <laughs> again, and again, the Culinary Institute of America <laughs> about, uh, the chef jet, they're actually going to ship it next year. So I thought that was an interesting and maybe encouraging thing for 3D food printing. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, again, we, I think so much of this has existed in restaurants or the, the concepts, you know, of being applied in restaurants and, uh, to see it in the home will sort of be like, you know, what will the price point be? I think the initial post, you know, back in 2014 about chef jet said that it was, you know, in the sub $10,000 range or something like that, but at which for the pro, which is like the full version. Um, and then the other one was like the $5,000 range, but, but you know, like it, it is kind of a, I still wonder what the application for this obviously isn't like a mainstream consumer product still, even if it's designed for the consumer market and not for the professional market, because the average person is not going to spend that much, nor is there really a reason why you would, I mean, it's cool. But if you look at the website, you know, there's like really interesting printed chocolate and, um, you know, sugar, different like sugar centerpieces and things like that. But I, I still, I think the case is yet to be made for con- the consumer kitchen and what 3d printing will bring to the consumer kitchen. I think you're largely right. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, this world where we envision a bunch of like, t- like containers with t- colored paste and they print <laughs> this magical meal, like first of all, that probably disgusts most people that, that think about that, but yeah, um, but if you think more broadly about what food printing can be, um, there's like this one company I'm trying to remember the name now. It's out out of Israel where they actually they just simply print really cool designs on top of like an espresso in the foam. Mm. And you've seen those before, maybe, but it's a consumer level version. But um, now that might not be something like the busy working person uses every day. But it might be like a cool gadget that they can like, hey, here's a really cool thing I could do where I can actually print uh, like the face of my child on a coffee or something. So I I just think like if we stand back and think more broadly about what food printing is, including very much around decorative and uh, and kind of uh, not necessarily around creating like three-dimensional foods, but like direct decorative applications, I think it's pretty interesting. But well, and your point, your point about could it be an add-on? To, like, are you using it in conjunction with other devices that are doing other things? I think that's like probably a good point. Like, as opposed to it being a standalone printer thing that exists separately from other things you're making in your kitchen. Yeah, I mean, I, but I getting back to the consumer market, that is the big like unknown to me still. Yeah, like how we see this eventually make its way into the the non-commercial kitchen, and I think that'll probably take some time. For that to happen, and certainly have to be like at price points that are a lot less than what you're seeing these these high end ones for. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Target is not going to carry a product like this, you know, at a at that price point. So they're gonna, they have some work to do there before retail becomes the reality. Speaking of high price points, I don't know if you saw that report out from Lux Research this past week. Uh, I think there was a report on Yahoo about how they still feel smart appliances are way too expensive. Yes, I did see that, and the the uh, study was sort of about consumers are moving from or they're abandoning some of these higher priced connected products, you know, smart products for like dishwashers, uh, washing machines, refrigerators. And, you know, there was a little bit of an uptick in some of like the smaller, cheaper smart locks, security and safety type products or whatnot, which I think is um, not surprising, right? I mean, we've kind of talked about this before. We had, we discussed the Samsung fridge at length, I think in one of our first podcasts about um, the price point being so high and also the fact that you know, appliances have long life cycles and people aren't buying them on a regular basis. And, and so what's, what does that look like and what does that do to the market? Yeah. I mean, and I think if you look at what they basically said, they, they, they open their press release, they open the report by saying, um, these product, these products are too expensive for wider adoption. And well, Mm -hmm. if you look at just traditional, like product adoption curves, 
Isn't that just kind of how they roll out? Like, you know, yeah, the, if, you, if you look at like the, the init stuff with, with Whirlpool, the first product line that they're rolling out in is the, the Gen Air, which is the premium Whirlpool line. Right. And so usually when this type of new technology comes, it always goes in the high, kind of the premium line and then comes down in the mainstream. I think that's going to happen pretty quickly. I think you're going to see this stuff move pretty quickly down into like the lower kind of mass market prices. Uh, yeah. But I that'll mean, probably take 20, 12 to 24 months. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that when TVs is a really good example of this. Like when I first started working in the industry, tech industry, ten years ago, we were doing, we were working with companies who were making really expensive plasmas and flat screens, and um, you know, now they're sort of ubiquitous, and you can kind of pick them up for, um, you know, under a grand easily. So I think you're right. That is, that's a really good point. But the other thing that they did talk about is, is the the adoption cycle. And we've addressed this too, like how it's not the same as, you know, just replacing a lock on your door or a thermostat or buying an outdoor camera. Um, people don't buy thing buy major appliances as regularly and they're not willing to necessarily just replace them because there's, you know, these sort of cool, nice to have new features. And they kind of, um, you know, they sort of pointed out that the market should look more at retrofit systems and, and ways to make your existing appliances smarter um, because that probably will help you know, broaden adoption faster. Yeah. If there's like one thing that made me sad about the meld guys getting bought by, mm. by Heston was this, I really like this idea of like retrofit. Um, yep. And I've written about that with regards to the broader smart home. Um, you know, there's guys that make uh, the roof smart battery, for example, which makes your, your smoke alarm smart rather than like trashing your smoke alarm system and throwing right. all these things out. <laughs> uh, you just put these smart Wi-Fi batteries in there and like, it makes it smart. And that has a couple of benefits. You don't obviously fill up landfills with, with runaway products, but also it, it doesn't force you to spend like, you know, thousands of dollars upgrading something when you could, you, instead you're spending like 50 to a hundred dollars. And so, right. and, and yeah, we talked about this kitchen appliances just have these 10 year life cycles and that's not really going to change when you add connectivity. So I agree. And that's why I've actually felt like small appliances, uh, that kind of the kit, countertop type of appliances. I think mm. those move around and turn over faster. And so that's where I, where I felt maybe the, the smart kitchen will take hold sooner. Um, just because it's going to take a while to swap out all these existing larger appliances. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a good point and, and it'll be an interesting market to kind of watch. I, I actually get to travel to the consumer reports offices this week to oh, see so their, cool. uh, yeah, it was really cool. I got to see their testing labs. They're great people over there. They, they are, and the testing labs are, you know, really intense. I mean, the stuff that they do to these appliances to, to come up with their scores is really rigorous and, um, very scientific. I actually, in one part felt like I was back in like a, my ninth grade, like science lab. Cause they had like these old school computers running like all of this constant data and the devices they were testing and stuff. It was really interesting. But they are starting to look at, you know, how appliances are kind of combining old school functionality, like, you know, washing machines and dryers and refrigerators with electronic functionality, you know, Wi-Fi built in or whatever. And so they're actually like, you know, they have two separate teams that test that stuff, you know, because it's the functionality is so different. Like how cold a fridge keeps something versus like how easy it is to connect your Wi-Fi on the panel and, you know, get it to like hook up to your other devices. So I thought it was sort of an interesting, um, but one of the things that, you know, one of the guys that I was talking to said was, so many of these connected appliances are just so expensive still that that's something that we're constantly pointing out in our review, like, because we can't, you can't help it. Like you can't help but say like that, that you're going to pay a premium for these features. Um, and someday that will probably change. But right now that's sort of, you know, where it is. You know, we should compare notes because I was actually at Good Housekeeping's um, 
test kitchen. That's right. And, and facility in New York. I don't think we've we've done we haven't done one of these podcasts. We've been busy. Where yeah. uh, we caught up on the news for at least a month, and I was out there last month. And I think the last one we did, we were talking about me going to New York. So Mike made his trip to New York, and he's back. And I, <laughs> he's back a while ago. I love that you just reverted to like reverted yeah, to the third yeah. person. By I do that all the time in conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Mike's love. Mike loves podcasting. <laughs> but uh, but I would be I would love to go to. Um, those two are like the big guys in the testing side. Yes, agreed. And then also Reviewed.com, yep. which is one of our media partners for the summit. They are a big testing house too. And I, I've almost, I got invited to go up there once and I didn't, we didn't make it work. It's in Boston. So another one that's close to in the New England area. And, uh, I think it is interesting to see kind of how they approach it. And then of course, like you have guys like CNET who buy entire homes to test their products. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but yeah, it is really, <laughs> fa- it is really fascinating to, to see like just all of the, I mean, they have these like, you know, temperature modules that they put in all the different areas and they measure them like certain times of day and then they like crank up the heat and these like they, they test refrigerators at 110 degrees like room temperature to see how good they do like try, keeping the stuff inside I don't know it's just like crazy very interesting makes me appreciate their ratings much more now <laughs> I, I did the actual tour around the entire facility including things like um, you know makeup and like and stuff you put on your face oh wow <laughs> there's this yeah, it was just really pretty fascinating. And, and Sharon Frank, who's speaking at the summit, she actually runs Good Housekeeping's kitchen testing lab. And so at the time I went in there, they actually had a whole lineup of uh, pressure cookers. So like mm. they were doing like the pressure cooker review. So like there's just like 20 of them lined up. So, oh, that's cool. That's pretty cool. So Very interesting. And I also happened to walk by the folks that do the smart home stuff. So I actually saw they are wrapping up like a smart lock uh, test. So I saw a bunch of smart locks in there. Anyway. Oh, nice. Very interesting. One thing I've, I've been wondering is, like, as we get more automation in the kitchen, will these guys test robots? Because uh, food rob- robots are kind of becoming a bigger thing. Right. And, uh, that is true. And taking over jobs or, you know, potentially taking over jobs that other that exist right now in, like, the food service and restaurant industry. Yeah, there's actually a McKinsey report out that's – and they did, like, 800 – like, reviewed 800 types of jobs. Mm-hmm. And the number one job type that was most in danger by – from the robots was uh, was food service. Yeah. I, by the way, I, not to whatever, but I feel like this this report. I was reading it. I was reading the summary of it. It's, it is really interesting. But I was like, this is what fuels like the crazy people who are like, everybody's taking our jobs. Like it, like robots are coming to destroy us all. Like this is this is these are the kind of reports that really fuel that type of. Fi- I just pictured like you know a crazy blog covering this. But anyway, total <laughs> total aside. But yeah. So I mean, if you look at stuff like. 3D printing and all the automation that's happening in the, you know, the kitchen, um, even delivery, right? Like drones. And I mean, there's so many things that I think in food service where a lot of people work and make their livelihood that um, could potentially be replaced with, you know, some AI and robot functions. And it's kind of, it's like a little bit, I think, you know, you said this, I thought it was appropriate, darker side of, of what's of the innovation that's happening, because I don't think that the food service industry is going to look the same a decade from now. Yeah, I think just broadly applied automation and under that umbrella include robotics. Like there's just so many interesting applications in cooking and the kitchen, both professional and, and the consumer kitchen. That is just going to be fascinating to talk about. We'll be talking about a lot here, but this is one angle that one one part of it I think is interesting. And yeah, I mean, you've already seen like, I think, you know, McDonald's, just from like putting in these touchscreen ordering systems, mm-hmm. uh, there's, we've probably... 
don't know if you've been in one of these restaurants. I've been in one or two of them where you actually go up and instead of a person, you just order on a touchscreen. And so yep. that just kind of makes sense. I mean, food kiosks have been, you know, taking the place of counter people for a while. Right. Um, right. Vending systems have been taking the way the, the, the place of people working at counters for a while. And that would just naturally make its way into restaurants. Well, and I think I read somewhere that, you know, vending machines could get even better because there you could have 3D printing happening in a vending machine where you could actually get like more than just packaged food. You might actually get fresh food or somewhat fresh food from, you know, a 3D printed, 3D printing vending machine. The vending machine itself would not be 3D printed, although maybe it will be someday. Who knows? But which I think is a totally valid point. And that like, imagine if you could just go get a little personal pizza at a little vending machine instead of going into a store and interacting with any individuals at all. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that folks who are doing those jobs, I mean, some of, some of those jobs are transient type, you know, uh, job force where it's, you know, younger people or people just entering the workforce to move up or I don't think it's, but there are others I think that are totally, you know, things that are going to be replaced and potential skills that people will have to develop elsewhere in the, or, you know, potentially elsewhere in that ki- the kitchen or in the food service space in order to kind of survive and be servicing the robots, I guess. I don't know, something <laughs> like they'll have to do something in, in that way and it, you know if anything this is a good reminder for all of us to get robot insurance yes yes <laughs> definitely need to get robot insurance and make sure that whatever you do use something uniquely that you provide that robots will never be able to do i mean robots will probably podcast someday and be probably way better at it than we are and have really good segues oh, yeah, and then yeah. We'll there'll just- be just robots who specialize in the segues like they'll be so good at it <laughs> <laughs> can't wait to listen to those podcasts <laughs> so, you know so speaking of you mentioned earlier like like vending machines or 3D printing, which kind of grossed me out. But did you hear about this this restaurant, pop-up restaurant in London that actually is pitching itself as the world's first 3D, 3D printing only restaurant? I did. It, the, and it started in Amsterdam. Now it's in London. And your piece on it made me laugh because you said, you know, that clearly everything is not, you know, everything's 3D printed is what they claim. Yeah. And then you were like, but and then they have like tomatoes. tomatoes. I'm like, are you really, like, can you 3D print fresh tomatoes? I don't think so. That is how good they are. They are 3D printing fresh. Well, I thought it was funny too because they're like, they're using 3D printed forks. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And like 3D printing, 3D printed tables and 3D print. Yeah. Some of it was like a little gimmicky, but, but it's, but it's kind of like, you know, performance art. It is. It's it's a, yeah. And it's a show and you pay like, I think it was 250 pounds or something, which is not cheap, but you get this like whole experience and, um, kind of cool. I think it didn't really, it didn't seem necessarily like something that was, um, going to stick in terms of like, this is going to be a, but, but kind of like showing people what's possible with 3d printing that maybe have never experienced it before. Yeah. And it'd be fun to go to. Um, and it's like, it's definitely more art and, and kind of performance art than like any sort of like serious attempt at a long-term restaurant. But the fact that you talked about early in the show, um, these chefs using this stuff in restaurants, I think it's cool. And this is just kind of one side of that, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Well, and then also speaking of like, you know, getting food easier, there's been some momentum that we've seen in the uh, food delivery space. We talked, I think, a little bit in our last podcast about food, the food delivery investment space kind of pulling back, the food tech investment pulling back on um, that space, some of the popular food delivery places uh, closing. Um, But then there was news this week that Freshly just got um, a pretty big infusion of cash, um, despite others going out of business. Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, this category, and there's a report out like this week. I, 
I, that I noted in the piece that the, the investment in food delivery still is by far the lion's share of, of the investment in food tech. So people still believe, I mean, if you just look at how much people spend on, on food and if you could start to take some of that and, and become the go-to subs- kind of weekly subscription service, you can see why VCs would be excited about that. Yeah. Still, there's been a lot of these guys going out of business. So it's you know it's always nice to see guys like uh, Freshly get uh, I, th- I think they got their Series B round twenty one million dollars and their whole angle is like we're fresh, um, kind of more healthy food. So I think yeah. at, we're at the point of the market where these guys are taking, you know, a different angle, saying you know we're this or we're that type of food. Yeah, yeah. All the and and segmenting out. I've seen ones that are like, well, you know, we're gluten free or it's a vegan service or we do these kind of meals or whatever. But it's not perfect. I mean, I think you recently experienced some challenges with food delivery service that is pretty popular. And I, I think it's not without its challenges. Um, I, do you want to talk about what what happened with your beloved my, Blue Apron? My meat juice problem. Your meat juice problem. <laughs> Just, just saying that is disgusting. I think you should make that the title of this podcast, My Meat Juice Problem. I think we have a winner. That's definitely it. Apologies well, to everyone. It's Friday, so there's no, this is a maybe not one. This isn't going to win any awards, this podcast in particular. How do you know? You know, that's true. That's true. Uh, um, you know, I love Blue Apron. I love um, what it did for me just exploring new and forcing me to cook, exploring new ways of cooking. And, and I like the recipe cards. And just it got me to cook more. It got my kids interested in this the cooking process a little more. Mm. And so I was really bummed to cancel it. And the problem was I got like three deliveries in a row where the meat um, the meat package had opened up or something. And I don't know if this was like specific to my like locale. Maybe there's a problem with their their quality here. But I was just getting like meat juice on the other parts of the food, whether that's like the vegetables. And yeah. anyone who doesn't get uh, who hasn't got a blue apron, you know, they just ship these big containers, and the vegetables are thrown in without plastic over them a lot of times. And so when you get like meat spilling its you know liquid over yeah. your your vegetables, you don't want to eat that. No, and I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm certainly not going to make a judgment about their quality control around the country, but we are on opposite coasts, and when we do Blue Apron, we had a couple times where this happened too. And I will say their customer service is fantastic. Like every time it happened, they would refund us the whole box and send us a new one, and so like you know they were very responsive. But it it was an issue, and there was times when like we got you know fish juice would like leak out, and like oh. you know that's just you had a fish juice problem. <laughs> I had a fish juice problem, and then the fish would be all over the asparagus, and I mean. Oh. Wants fishy vegetables. So, and you throw the whole thing out, you lose the whole. And I would, the thing that really upset me is that I would base my whole meal plan around yeah. that, you know, that coming. So then I was like, crap, now yeah. I got to go back to the store and get like three or four more meals. It's really, I mean, once, one, once twice I went out and bought like new meat because like I yeah. was able to save those stuff, but like, yeah, it, it's still annoying because you plan your whole meal around it. And so to have to, even if you're getting the refund, which is nice, yeah. it's, it kind of throws everything in, in for a loop. So, yeah. That's kind of a bummer. That's my story of canceling Blue Apron. So I think there's still some challenges for these guys to be worked out. Even Blue Apron, which is by far I think the highest profile of all of them, yes. is still having its issues. So yeah. But we have some uh, we have some summit news to get to. Um this was a pretty good week, a pretty exciting week. We actually put out our, our release announcing the full slate of uh the school full schedule. I know um, it's it's up and live on the website right now. You can go see all of the different panels that we have scheduled, and I, I mean, even I when I every time I look at it, I'm like, I can't believe how many big names we have. I mean, it's just like you know Nestle and Campbell's Soup, and you know it's just sort of like uh, these big food companies that we didn't we I mean we didn't have last year at all. It's the, the growth has been really amazing. I think if you look at the schedule this year, you just it's sort of a rock star lineup. 
Yeah, and I think it's been a while, so we haven't probably even mentioned the fact we have um, at least talked about this on our our, our talk. <laughs> our talkies or whatever we call these. <laughs> talkies. <laughs> um, but like we have Nathan Mirabold and Charlie Kindle. Um, yes. And so that's exciting. You know, some kind of some, some folks who I think are very important in the spaces. All of them are important in the spaces. So uh, I'm just excited about it. Yeah. The, the new thing this year too, for folks who were at the summit last year, you'll see that we have breakout sessions this year. So there's going to be two different tracks. Uh, one's like a business and market track and one's science and tech. And so we're kind of, uh, it's our way of, you know, jamming more content in one day that could possibly fit, but also really cool because it gives you options. I think that was some of the feedback we heard last year was people wanted the, you know, the option to be able to either opt out of something if they didn't want to hear it or, um, you know, just have a wider, wider variety. So that's really cool. Um, and then another new thing we're doing this year is the startup showcase, which again, folks who came last year, we had startup startups at the summit during the day, sort of, uh, you know, folks like Tephoria who were demoing and making tea and things like that in the front of the room. Uh, this year we're actually doing an opening reception and we're going to have a specific showcase for startups at that reception and you actually have to apply. So you have to apply, tell us why you should be in the <laughs> showcase, which is kind of yeah. cool. Um, and we're going to pick them. Yeah. And this isn't like one of those, I, I mean, I, I being in the tech space, I go to a lot of events and, and I worked at Giga and we, I just look at this space a lot and there's people who like will have these contests where you actually have to charge, they charge you to apply yeah. for their contests. I'm like, <laughs> no, you literally have to fill out the application and like, we're going to look back and look at all these and say, these are the 15 coolest startups in the space and give them a table at this, this reception. Yep. We're not charging them for tickets or the table. They're actually, they could come and bring uh, one other person. So like, uh, yeah, it's it's just for me it's a cost of doing business. Like getting like the coolest smart kitchen and food tech startups at my event. Like this is something I want to do. I'm not trying to make money off it because I think everyone who comes to this event, like some of these executives from these big companies, they want to see these startups too. Yes. And I mean I think we've you know, we've mentioned before, I think on on the blog and just in general talking, like people have, have there's been partnerships that have been launched from the summit last year, people who've connected and met that, you know, hadn't before and I think that's a huge opportunity. So I it's it's certainly gonna be it's it's I think it's one of the best functions of the summit and that particular night with the startup showcase is gonna kind of um, you know, amplify that. Totally. I mean we talk, I don't know if we talked about the fact that you, when Yummy acquired Orange Chef, you know, that kind of was birthed at our at our summit, and yeah, I think you, know, you tweeted it. <laughs> I was so excited, and when yeah. I went out to uh, went out to New York, the Whirlpool and the Inet folks said they first met at my summit too. So I'm like, yeah. I told these guys that I felt like I almost, I think I got misty. It's like when your friend, <laughs> when you have friends meet at your wedding and they end up getting married like that. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's totally. a terrible, maybe that's not the right analogy. <laughs> no, 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 it works. It totally works. <laughs> good. So the point is you want to be in the startup showcase. If you're a startup in the smart kitchen or food tech space and you want to have, and you have a cool demo, you definitely want to be there. And, um, and tickets actually early bird tickets are selling out soon. What is the day today? Less than probably 15. It's the 15th. So like we're halfway through the month, July 31st, early bird tickets are selling out. So if anybody is going to go, which in a lot of you who are listening to this probably are, you probably should get your tickets soon before prices go up after that. Yeah, and no, we're like less than three months away, by the way. Do you know I know this? that scares me. It really scares me. <laughs> um, the I have a secret though for the podcast listeners that they can't tell anyone else. There's actually a discount code. You get extra ten percent off if you use the the, the discount code podcast. Um, and you can actually you can just go to our site, go to the event Eventbrite site, and enter that code, and you get an extra ten percent off early bird. So that like that's all. That's a great deal. It is definitely. I think we're done. I, I we talked about meat juice and also. What else I, is there? Really? 
And it's and obviously on a high note. That's my and opinion. on a high note. This has been a great one. Uh, Ashley, you're really good at this. Like you're, you're like, you will never be, you never have your job taken away by Segway robot because like your Segways are masterful. I'm adding that to my LinkedIn after this. So <laughs> there we go. Thanks Mike. All right. Bye. Smartkit show is brought to you by Technology.fm, Next Market Insights, and the Smartkits and Summit. All the music for today's show is created by Paul Tyan, T-Y-A-N. Check them out on SoundCloud. You can now find the Smart Kitchen show on iTunes or just go to smartkitchensummit.com backslash show. For season two, we hope to bring you lots more stories and different conversations and mix up the format a little bit. So stay tuned. And if you want to come to Smart Kitchen Summit, you know where to go, smartkitchensummit.com. 